Hi, I'm Helen Avery with the Green Finance Institute. And I'm Jessica Smith with the United Nations Environment Programme. In this episode four of our COP27 special series of Financing Nature, we'll be sitting down with Karen Sack, Executive Director of the Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance, Aura. And I'll be joined by Jabine Batista of the Global Fund for Coral Reefs. And welcome, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for our fourth and blue episode of our special series of Financing Nature as we lead up to COP27. And Jessica, how's the caffeine intake going? (laughs) Thanks, Ellen. It's been better. It's been worse. There's a bit of a marathon underway getting ready for COP27. Then the Convention on Biological Diversity's COP is shortly afterwards. Yeah, that's, it's brilliant timing, isn't it? There's <laughs> so much work to be done in the next few months. Um, so today we are all about oceans, more than 70% of the surface of our planet, of course, and yet often left out of climate finance conversations. So I'll be talking to Karen Sack from the Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance about the role of oceans in climate mitigation and how we might start mobilising finance into ocean and coastal restoration projects. Super. And I'll be highlighting the Global Fund for Coral Reefs, which is the first and largest blended finance vehicle dedicated to the Sustainable Development Goal 14, Life Below Water. So it's a perfect illustration of the principles that Karen will be outlining. Great. Let's invite Karen on. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, First off, um, how are you? I know it's busy leading up to COP27 for you. So how's it going? Uh, it is lovely to see you, Helen, and lovely to be with you. Um, things are a little bit busy. Uh, it's mid-October and uh, heading straight towards uh, the COP and Sean El Sheikh. And this year, not just one COP, we've got straight after COP 27, we've got COP 15, the Biodiversity COP. So a lot of work on the table at the moment. There is. So I wanted to dive right in. Um, I expect you hear these ocean puns all the time of diving in Um, and just ask you to really frame up for us, if you will, this connection between the health of our oceans and climate change. We often say nature and climate go hand in hand, and I think we well understand that role when it comes to forests. Um, But it feels like maybe that recognition of interconnectivity hasn't quite been formalized for oceans or certainly so it's not as familiar so I wonder if you can just start us off by reminding us why oceans are so important. We all forget how much of a blue planet we really live on and uh, how critical the ocean is as an earth system so obviously we've all seen the, uh, the the image of earth from space and it is blue Um, And we need to remember that that blue is not just across the surface, but it's into the depths as well. And so what does the ocean do for us? It is a critical earth system. Uh, It feeds billions of people around the world. It provides livelihoods and jobs. 40% of the world's population uh, lives near the coast. One billion people, or about 13% of the entire global population, live less than 10 metres above today's high tide lines. And we should also know, of course, that um, the ocean has absorbed over 90% of the heat from our global emissions and about a third of the CO2 
And so that is having major changes uh, in terms of salinity and acidification in the water changing and oxygen content. And all of that is having biophysical and chemical impacts um, on the state of the ocean. So uh, we can't ignore the ocean. If we do, it is really at our peril. Well, on this peril, and I hate to sort of start a podcast with such a doomsday um, opening, but, you know, there's a threat to food security. I know you and I have talked about migration in the past. So maybe just, you know, we can sort of touch on some of those perils. Let's start with one of the the factoids that I think is is one of the scariest, which is that because of all of this heat that the ocean has absorbed, if it weren't for the ocean, the average mean temperature on land today would be about 50 degrees Celsius, Wow, which is unlivable really for humans. At the moment, it's about 13 degrees Celsius. So fundamentally, we are able to exist at the moment because of what the ocean is doing for us just in absorbing that heat from our CO2 emissions. We've got about 3 billion people around the world who depend on the ocean for food and livelihoods. As fish populations shift and move, and also as there's less oxygen in the water, they're smaller fish as well, temperatures are changing. Um, The ability of those communities to maintain those livelihoods becomes threatened. Mm. Um, And... That means that if they lose those livelihoods, those informal economies could collapse. It could force those people to move into cities, which is all going to impact on the tax base and the ability of countries and and cities to adapt to that influx of population. It also, of course, would destroy the cultural and social resilience and fabric of so many communities around the world. We've also got about 270 of some of the world's largest cities based in coastal areas. So if we're thinking about the potential for food insecurity, as you mentioned, migration, and then what that means in terms of national security, all of those things begin to kind of swirl around and really impact on geopolitical issues, issues, uh, and on, on human rights issues around the world. The ocean is really central in terms of all of those issues as we look forward to climate adaptation and mitigation and measures that need to be taken. So obviously you are the um, Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance, so very, very familiar with this kind of scenario. So I'm guessing, have we made that connection with economic risk? Is that the one that we need to make? We definitely have to make the connection to economic risk, but I think it's incumbent on all of us not to forget those other risks that we've just discussed. Because uh, if we think about society and we think about community, we cannot disregard them. The economic risks, though, are clear. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But, um, for example, we did some work last year that was led by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which looked at the value at risk in the blue economy to uh, publicly listed companies and found that about two in every three publicly listed companies are exposed to and in some degree dependent as well on a healthy ocean. And in just six sectors, there's a value at risk in what we call the blue economy, 
um, over the next 15 years, um, if business as usual continues, that value is about $8.4 trillion, which is almost twice the size of the German economy today. So um, if we can shift to a more sustainable uh, trajectory, we can actually reduce that by nearly $3 trillion. I think the other thing that is so important as we move forward is the critical role of nature and investing in nature in mitigating some of that risk. Um, You know, nature is really the most creative solution that we have, which is hiding in plain sight. And that when we do the economic analyses, we often don't internalize into calculations. You know, if we look at some of the costs at the moment from coastal floods and storm surge, and I'm I'm not even bringing in this year because this year has been extreme. So just over the last 10 years or so, the cost per annum is between 10 and $40 billion a year in coastal floods and storm surge. And it's estimated that that cost could reach $1 trillion a year for coastal cities by 2050. Wow. Which is huge. Yeah. Now, what we have found with nature-based solutions is that they're much more cost-effective. That, for example, you know, just 100 meters of a mangrove forest can reduce wave height um, from storm surge by 70%. 500 meter wide mangrove forest can reduce wave height by up to 100 mm. percent. Uh, how much does it cost to invest in making sure that that mangrove forest is maintained? It's much cheaper than you know building a an artificial seawall, which as soon as it's built starts to degrade, costs significantly more, and doesn't have the added biodiversity and sequestration uh, benefits that mangroves and seagrasses, coral reefs and other coastal ecosystems have. It's all about really the investment and maybe we'll touch on government and their role and policy regulation also, obviously. Um, But for the sake of this podcast, it's about unlocking private finance into nature restoration, nature-based solutions. What's the finance gap we're actually looking at when it comes to protecting coastal communities and restoring ocean health? Well, I, I was hoping, Helen, we wouldn't get more depressing as oh, we progress through the podcast. But now you've asked the question that is, you know, it's kind of mind boggling when we think about it. Um, if we look at climate finance at the moment, 0.01% of climate finance has been invested uh, into marine and coastal nature-based solutions, which is around a billion dollars per annum in that way. And the financing gap is huge. Um, we, you know, there've been estimates that we need between four to $800 billion invested into uh, nature uh, around the world and biodiversity. We're not nearly there. Um, and when it comes to climate finance, again, we know that there are shortfalls already. So we've got to think Innovatively, and this is where the Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance uh, coming into being was to see how we could bring governments, the private sector and civil society around the table. The innovation is that we are taking some of the finance and insurance products that have been developed already and applying them into the space to show value, 
to reduce risk and exposure and to build resilience. Well, I think that leads us straight onto the question of, can you share some of those examples? Let's put some uh, examples into the mix. So, um, as I mentioned, you know, nature is hiding in plain sight. Uh, and just, you know, it's the estimates are that it's about 50 times more cost effective over 15 years to protect a coral reef or a mangrove than to build a seawall. Mm. So we have been, uh, for example, working with some of our colleagues in the Mesoamerican Reef region. So the Mesoamerican Reef is the second largest barrier reef in the world. Uh, it runs up the coast of in Central America, Belize, Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico. There is a lot of tourism uh, that goes on in the region. And if an extreme storm hits, then uh, that tourism stops. There's no income coming in, but also there's huge devastation to the reef. So we have worked with the Inter-American Development Bank to do an economic valuation of the reef uh, with our partners at WTW, Willis Towers Watson, uh, the insurance brokers to design a parametric product working in collaboration with the Mesoamerican Reef Fund, which is based on looking at wind speed from an extreme storm. So as soon as wind speed hits a certain uh, target, uh, a payout is made. Uh, In advance of that storm hitting, some of these tourism workers um, and others in the community are trained to be uh, a kind of reef defenders. They are deployed into the reef area. Um, They keep getting a salary, even though there may not be tourists coming. And in that way, we can try and keep the economy going, restore the reef and make sure that uh, we are protecting and reducing risk for those communities. Mm. Other examples in the ocean space include the, you know, move now on on blue bonds, the potential for carbon credits, resilience credits, and biodiversity credits, all of these to incentivize private sector investment into the space to reduce the risks and to move the sector forward. Um, I also just wondered, you know, when we talk about oceans broadly, it's about coastal resilience. We talk about sustainable fisheries. We often talk about mangroves and the reefs. Um, To what extent are we talking, not talking, about things like plastics? We're talking about all of them. Um, So when we focus on ocean risk, we talk about the risks uh, from climate change in particular and the climate crisis. But we have to talk about the risk multipliers that go along with that change because overfishing is certainly one of them. A degraded ecosystem is less resilient. And plastics, pollution from nutrient runoff from farms, All of those are these risk multipliers that undermine the resilience, again, of these ecosystems. So it's important for us to address those. Plastics are, you know, to me, it's it's the type of pollution that is like CO2. These are both land-based sources, and we need to tackle those problems at the source We've also got to tackle them on the coast. And this is where there is the potential uh, in looking at investable opportunities to mesh together grey and green or grey and blue investment opportunities. So if you are going to need to build uh, a waste management plant, can that be done in a way that's also nature positive? 
that doesn't destroy a mangrove um, or a, a, a seagrass bed uh, or a salt marsh, but that can be done with nature so that we can see the investment going both ways, reducing the multipliers as well as building the resilience. So the, I guess the question we often ask is, you know, how do we activate finance at scale? What are some of the challenges you're seeing and sort of what are the, the ways we can overcome those challenges? Yeah, so, you know, we're excited about these, these projects that we have going around the world, but we are also very clear-eyed that it doesn't matter how many pilot projects we get moving and how quickly we move them to scale, none of that is going to be sufficient in terms of what we need. Mm. And we we did some research on what was really needed. Was there a, a single fund that was needed to help drive investment in the space? What were some of the barriers to investment? And essentially, you know, some of the key issues include limited experience in pricing, resilience, and the value of nature, uh, lack of ecological data and modeling, small ticket sizes versus very high transaction costs. In essence, the, the work that was done came back and essentially said, we don't need a fund. We actually need a global ocean financing architecture. So working with our partners at Aura, and we've got more than 60 members uh, now that are members uh, that are part of the alliance, we have begun to develop what we call the Sea Change Impact Financing Facility, or SCIF. Now, a SCIF is a, a small boat that is used uh, in various communities around the world. Um, and if we want to see a step change in investment, then we really need to see a sea change. We need a whole flotilla of these small boats uh, working towards the same goal. And in terms of the SCIF, a financing facility, we are looking at a, a blue resilience marketplace where some of those projects that are bubbling up, uh, we can do some matchmaking between buyers and sellers, okay. but make sure that there are guardrails and safeguards included uh, into that marketplace. We also need a, a kind of finance umbrella that includes things like funds of funds uh, to invest into existing impact funds, but also some more funds that are focused on what we would call the missing middle, opportunities that might not be uh, completely bankable yet, um, but are on the pathway uh, towards being bankable and investable, but need that seed funding or some grant funding to get there. And this is where we need blended finance from philanthropy, from the public sector, as well as some patient financing from the private sector to get to scale. And then, of course, the, the third element for us, which is really critical, is the de-risking. And so we're looking at developing a risk transfer platform that can bring in the guarantees or the insurance risk wrappers to build around those products. I think key is actually the first thing that we need for the sea change is, is a mind shift. Um, and that is particularly for the private sector to recognize that in investing in nature, in looking at building resilience, critical outcomes are both impact and return. Mm -hmm. And we need to deploy some patient capital in terms of building some of the products to, to build this marketplace to scale. So it sounds like it's, you know, it's having a real spectrum of investment. We're not just talking about one size fits all. There's lots of gaps in the entire architecture. I love that word that you um that you're using. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, you know, some of the most vulnerable countries are the least uh, investable from the perspective of some of the private sector. And that's something we also need to change. And that's where, you know, it's really exciting to see some of the work, for example, that's been done in the US at the moment about developing um, natural capital accounting methodologies in the EU on its taxonomies um, and through the, the, the task force on nature-related disclosures. All of those are going to add to the momentum to value the quality and the impact of these investments as well as that return. You know, I was with the Minister of Environment and Climate Change for the Maldives a few weeks ago and she said, you know, we've got 87 months left based on the science to 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 really stick to the 1.5 degree target and try and achieve our goals. And that really struck home. Yeah. 87 months, that's insane. Um, there's so much pressure riding on this COP. I think it's in Africa. So hopefully we'll hear that stronger voice from developing economies. Given adaptation and resilience are expected to have more of a spotlight um, in November, what do we need out of COP27? I really do hope that as countries head towards this COP, they are thinking about that implementation. They are thinking about the scale of mobilization that we need, particularly with regard to finance and begin to think about restructuring sovereign debt in a way that uh, provides the type of financing that particularly least developed countries need. So we are hoping to see more focus on nature and on the ocean, particularly with with COP15, with the biodiversity COP hot on the heels Mm. um, of COP27, Uh, and a focus on setting these biodiversity protection targets of at least 30% of land and sea being protected by 2030. We're going to need the financing for that. We've got to start thinking about how investing into nature is an investment into our common future and a a future that sticks to that 1.5 degree target. But we really have to get that momentum moving by countries and by the private sector stepping up significantly now to shift its investments, the way that it uh, is managing assets, to understand what it needs to not invest in, and to be working with the public sector to make some really big commitments as we move forward. That was the real rallying cry. It's been such a pleasure having you on and good luck with all your travels over the coming months. Lovely. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's been delightful talking with you. It's so easy to forget about the ocean when we are inland, but it's fantastic to be reminded what a great source of solutions it is. It's incredible that SDG 14 is the least funded when it's so critical for the billions of people who rely on our oceans and the services they provide. Yeah, I was really surprised by that figure of 0.01% of climate finance that goes into oceans and coastal areas that Karen shared. Um, And thank goodness there are initiatives working hard to mobilise finance like, um, as well, the Global Coral Reef Fund. Yes, totally. So this fund is designed to scale financial solutions and blue economic growth that bolsters the resilience of this important ecosystem. So as I mentioned earlier, it's both the first and largest blended finance vehicle for SDG 14. So let's invite on Jabonet now to hear more. (laughs) 
So first of all, could you tell us about the Global Fund for Coral Reefs? Why are coral reefs so critical as a nature-based solution? And what does building a reef-positive investment mean? Thanks, Jessica, for that question. Coral reefs actually harbor the highest biodiversity of any ecosystem globally, including 25% of all marine biodiversity. They also support more than 1 billion people globally by providing vital ecosystem services like food security, income from fisheries and tourism, and critical coastal protection from storms and floods. But yet, coral reefs are also among the Earth's most endangered ecosystems. And that's where the Global Fund for Coral Reefs comes in. In a nutshell, the, the fund is a blended finance instrument, which is designed to facilitate an innovative reef-positive investment ecosystem with an array of uh, financial tools designed to incubate the risk and unlock public and private market-based financial flows to safeguard the most resilient reefs around the world. Everything that we finance needs to provide a positive effect for coral reefs. And that is what we mean by a reef positive investment ecosystem. To accomplish this goal, our interventions focus on a protect, transform, restore, and recovery approach, which focuses on addressing local drivers of degradation to strengthen reef resilience and supporting um, local communities. We have two core vehicles, financial vehicles, which are a grant fund um, with the capacity to offer grants, concessional loans, guarantees, and technical assistance, and also an investment fund. Great. And I imagine, you know, you need a pipeline. So what are the challenges that the Global Fund for Coral Reefs has faced in identifying appropriate investments? Although we are a relatively young fund, only about two years old, we are already identifying some key lessons learned. The first one is that there is a significant um, baseline data gap in coral reef countries. And what we're doing to address this is that we are actually channeling a good amount of our resources to helping our partners in the water to build those baselines and to collect that data so that we can then truly measure the impact of our interventions. The second lesson that, that we have identified to date is that pipeline scoping has shown that investment ready or near investment ready interventions with assured impact on coral reefs are actually limited. This mm -hmm. is reflective of the nascent stage of the blue economy and business models that are geared towards reef positive impact. And tackling this um, from our perspective includes looking for additional finance opportunities to address gaps in the financial ecosystem and particularly um, finding new resources for technical assistance to incubate projects. And third, um, we see that there is a need to build a financial investment ecosystem through new partnerships and networks to connect incubated pipelines to investors. It, it is actually not that easy to come up with a pipeline and then find the investors. So we need to really build on that collaboration. And what more do you think is needed to really scale reef positive investments? I think we need more dialogue. One of the things that we have found is that the conservation community comes from their own particular angle and the investment community comes from, of course, their own particular angle. And, and we're seeing that there is sometimes a translation um, issue. So we need to increase the connection between conservation and private sector actors to actually create, in our case, this reef positive investment ecosystem and be able to build that reef positive um, pipeline. Yes. And you mentioned that a billion people rely on coral reefs for their livelihoods. 
How are local communities benefiting from the pipeline of investments that the fund is working to establish? Yes, thanks for that question. And I think this question is is crucial. Um, today, I would like to share with you what, what I think are, are two good examples of how the GFCR is, is going to be working or currently working with local communities. First, in our Mesoamerica Reef program uh, with the Mesoamerican Reef Fund as our main partner, we are working with them on developing king crab restorative mariculture. The problem that we see in the Mesoamerican Reef region is that pollution and depleted populations of herbivore fish has led to an increase in fleshy macroalgae that actually outcompetes coral. So what we are doing is that we will be supporting the generation of a business model that supports king crab mariculture. And when we do this, while reefs have better algae control thanks to the crab, fishers can then sell the crabs once they are mature, and this would serve as an additional source of income. As part of this intervention, we will also be supporting uh, financially training on mariculture and raising crabs with a particular focus on communities that have strong women's um, participation. The other example I would like to share with you today is from our first program that was launched in 2021 in Fiji. And, and they have a, an intervention in that program, which is around a, a fertile factory. The problem that we are aiming to solve there is that farmers are currently using fertilizers that are depleting the microbiome of the soil. And this is resulting in the need to continually have to increase the amount of fertilizers and the runoff from these fertilizers is seriously affecting um, coral reefs. So what we are doing as a solution is to provide farmers with a non-synthetic fertilizer, which is locally produced, and also therefore helps farmers increase their resilience as they are less dependent on imports, supply chain problems, and this also helps them better weather fertilizer price fluctuations. In this particular case in Fiji, we, we also have a strong focus on training. We are working with, with our partners there on training local farmers on best practices for fertilizer application and erosion control. One other key aspect is that we're also testing with local farmers their appetite for new fertilizer products. This is a change mm -hmm. to how they have been doing things as a community. So we need to see how they receive and adapt to that change. And currently, actually, this already started in 2002. Um, our, our main partner there, the United Nations Development Program, is working with farmers on, on planting trials to test and demonstrate the potential yield of this new fertilizer product. Great. Well, I'm so excited to see the results of all the investments. Thank you so much, Jabba, for sharing your time with us and explaining the work of the Global Fund for Coral Reefs. Thank you, Jessica. Well, I had no idea that so many people on the planet relied on the health of coral reefs. It was really surprising for me, a really interesting conversation. Yeah, incredible, isn't it? But the 500 million USD target is still a drop in the ocean compared to the total needs. So we'll need a lot more funds like this one around the world. 
Indeed, we do. And perhaps uh, COP27 is the COP where we get that message through. Um, Well, that's all from us this episode. Uh, And sadly, this is your last episode with us, Jessica, as next week it will just be me and Susan Gardner, Head of Ecosystems Division at the United Nations Environment Programme, and Evo Mulder, Head of the Climate Finance Unit in Susan's team. So as this is your last episode, as the team heads out to Sharm el-Sheikh, what are your takeaways? takeaways from from the series well first of all thank you so much for having me helen i've really enjoyed these conversations and learned such a lot from pairing with you Um, the big takeaway for me is how nature finance can be such a good news story for climate biodiversity and delivering on the sdgs but it needs more coming together of public and private finance actors to grow to scale totally and i think those discussions will be propelled forward hopefully over the next few weeks, but also from your upcoming State of Nature Finance report that's coming out. uh, When is that coming out? It's coming out later this month. And actually, it includes data for marine areas for the first time as well. So it fits well with the theme of this uh, episode. The report has moved online now, and it will be an increasingly granular source for tracking the nature finance gap, which needs to close urgently, or we increasingly lose the opportunity of these natural climate solutions. It's always great to have um, data on on what's happening and really looking forward to that report coming out. Well, Jessica, it's been such a pleasure working with you uh, and really fun. And I, I do hope we do it again. And I hope things go smoothly for you and the team in Egypt. Thank you so much, Helen. It's been a pleasure. And to those listening, a big thank you to you for your support. We'll see you next week. 